Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Just a warning, we will be discussing suicide in this episode of the pod. You can reach Lifeline any time of the day or the night on 131114. I think one of the really big, enormous shifts here is for too long, mental health budgets have looked at, gosh, how much are we spending on mental illness? It's kind of like that expenditure side of a P&L. What we need to move to, and I think we are now moving to, is to say, let's go on to the balance sheet, not the P&L, and we're actually investing in mental health and wellbeing. So we're actually putting the dollars into keeping people well. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, uh, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm delighted to have with me Christine Morgan this week. Christine is the uh, chief executive officer of the National Mental Health Commission, but she's also had a quite complex task, really, over the last... How long? Mm, it's been over 18 months now, yeah. so it was about July 2019. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. It's sort of more than one year, but less than two. That's you know? it, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. So, uh, and, and the complex task that we're going to unpack and talk about for the show this week is... She's been advising uh, Scott Morrison on the really important area of suicide prevention. And we've seen in the budget this Tuesday night a number of initiatives mm. for uh, mental health and for suicide prevention, which we're going to chat about in this podcast because I know out there how many people <laughs> are dealing with friends, relatives, loved ones with mental health conditions yep. And sadly, uh, trying to keep people with suicidal ideations alive and among us. So this is uh, really profoundly important stuff. So just before we get into the bits and pieces in the budget, Christine, I just want to share a little, if we can, with mm -hmm. the listeners, the process that's led you up to this and, and what sure. you might have learned along the way. Because you sort of started, then the pandemic hit. That's right. And uh, and there wasn't a lot of visibility for your process. I mean, people involved in your consultations obviously will know exactly what's gone on, mm. but the general public, there was just so much... Uh, so much happening. Exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah. just we don't need to be exhaustive, but yeah. let's tell people how you've how arrived okay. at, these, uh, at these particular positions. And look, and I think this is really important because when, when given a task of this magnitude, which is basically to say... We have a goal of towards zero suicides. That was what it was set. We hear that a whole of government approach would make a difference. Go investigate. Tell. Tell us what to do. And 
I hold true to the fact that the real enabler in all of this was the imprimatur that came from the Prime Minister making the request. One of the things that became glaringly obvious to me as we investigated, interrogated, if you like, this question of what is the benefit, if any, of whole of government to really impacting on suicide prevention mm. And we specifically did that through the lens of those people with lived experience of suicidal distress, crisis or loss, because we thought, okay, we hear the theory. We actually want to kind of interrogate this with what people have done on their journeys. Mm. Um, it made a significant difference to the fact that the Prime Minister himself had said, Christine, you're authorised yeah. to go and talk to my Cabinet Ministers and others. Mm. And that's replicated in other jurisdictions in Australia. And so one of the landing points, which I'll get to straight away, is that if we truly do need a whole-of-government approach, it must be authorised by First Ministers. Mm. Whether it reports to them or not, not so important, but it must be authorised. So in order to do that, we did effectively three pieces of work. And we did it with the assistance of an expert advisory group. And the expert advisory group drew in representatives with a, a focus on diversity. Mm -hmm. So diversity of lived experience, diversity within our society. So we ensured that we had representation from LGBTQI, yeah. that we had representation from men, because we know that they're a very significant group when it comes to suicidal loss from our called communities, from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, from experts mm. in the field, mm. our researchers, academics and service providers. So we had an expert advisory group, we had the task force. And we had a modus operandi of consult, consult, consult. We wanted to listen, to hear, to distill, and then through the lens of that question, does it make a difference if it's whole of government? Mm. So initial findings were in November that basically said, gosh, we do need this paradigm shift. The thing that came through to me was that there was a lot of theory around, mm. a lot of experts. They used lived experience to illustrate that, yeah. but not necessarily to inform it. Yeah. We had the obvious, which was 50% at least of people who were losing to suicide were not in touch with mental health services. Yeah, I remember so it was last time. That, yeah. Yeah. So all of those yeah. things were just glaring. So mm. then we said from 2020, we said, okay, Let's bring together people who have been right at that critical point mm. of distress crisis attempt or who have lost. And let's try to understand this a little bit better. And so what we did is we, we had an opportunity to work with close to 2,000 Australians and who had been in those situations. And we said, tell us your journey and when did all of this start and what were the particularly acute points? Second question, what's been your experience of the system within Health and Out? Mm. And... What we then did with all of those stories is we thematically analysed them. Mm. So for the first time, we were able to start to see some emerging, lightly emerging patterns of types of circumstances and events that could be critical for people. Mm -hmm. And we're able to start defining some journeys, some pathways, never crossing into the fact that suicide is personal, yeah. so you can't cookie cutter, but there are certain things. And in nearly every single instance of those 2,000 people, the journey started way before they got to the point of suicidal crisis and needed mental health services. Mm. So we landed absolutely in the spot. If you have suicidal distress beginning because it might have happened from childhood trauma, it might have happened from uh, substance abuse combined with some form of discrimination, it might mm. have happened through economic or employment insecurity or housing insecurity, whole range of reasons, mm. that's the problem that has to be fixed at that point in time. That's not a mental health service. Mental yeah. health services support you at that time. It's something else you therefore need whole of government. Mm. So then we went into a space 
with our interim report, which was released in November, provided to the government in July, where we said, okay, you need whole of government. And the question for me became very forensically, okay, how do you do whole of government? Because if that's what we need to do, then let's push everything else to one side. How do you do whole of government? Mm. So we had at that time 13 uh, recommendations, and I'll walk through where we finally got to. And then we went into a period of active consultation with each of the jurisdictions, with people with lived experience, with community groups, to say, are we getting these recommendations right so that we have that landing point of whole of government? Mm. We're not looking here to improve services per se. Yeah. Our job is that. So we landed finally on eight recommendations, four enablers, four key shifts, which I firmly believe that if we took those eight recommendations and we've put under each of them very specific priority actions, which are driven by 2020 circumstances, Mm -hmm. do each of those and we will be significantly on the way to a whole of government approach. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't speak whole of government. What does what, that mean? What is yeah, I mean I know exactly what you mean, but explain no, what that point. explain what a that good means. Good point. And mm. I think this is the whole if we look at this whole project or task, I think let's let's historically say it has been examining that question. Mm. Whole of government means government under our Westminster system has different jurisdictions. So in Australia we have the Commonwealth as a distinct jurisdiction and then we have each of our states and territories. Mm. In each jurisdiction in the Commonwealth, we have a number of different portfolios. We've got education, we have social services, we have health, we have home affairs as examples. Mm. And so whole of government within a jurisdiction means how do I make sure that if I need something done in housing, which is going to have an impact or benefit in health or vice versa, Mm. how do I get those two different portfolios working together Mm when you might have to pay for it out of one portfolio and get a benefit in another. That's whole of government Mm. within a jurisdiction. Then, and this really emerged in 2020, we have whole of governments. Whole of governments is our new understanding of national. Mm. So that is where you say, how does the Commonwealth wanting to address suicide prevention in schools, which is really the purvey yeah, of a state-run state, how do you get that working together? Yeah. So that's that's the whole of governments and whole of government. Because it's Well, it's a challenge for a lot of service delivery, but particularly in mental health, because it's an optimised system and, and, and I acknowledge, obviously, suicide's broader than mental health. That's the point. But a, an optimised system would be a national approach to these things, but, but these services are delivered through a federated model. So you've got to make sure that there's end-to-end communications and tie-ups between the levels of government and within governments, as you say. That, and can I also just use this as a point to say there's another very complex little knot in there, which I don't think we've unravelled. You're absolutely spot on when you say that we need a national approach. National means coordinated, and there are certain things where either due to their scalability, their reach, or the need for consistency must be replicated Mm. wherever they're happening. Mm -hmm. But, big but... When it comes to actually what works for the individual person, they exist in a local community. And indisputably, what is most effective for suicide prevention is being able to identify things for people in their local communities. So we can kind of get there with the national and we can kind of get there with the whole of government within each jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. The really challenging question for us in suicide prevention, but also in mental health service delivery, this is a common point, how do we do the regional? Mm -hmm. How do we do the local? 
what is the entities through which you go? Mm. How do you actually get that? So you've got, if you like, national consistency with local flexibility. Mm. Mm. It's actually sounds so easy. Yeah, but no, doing it's not, it, no, doing, it's and this this is where it really yeah. impacts on on individuals and saving lives. You've got to be able to get both of those right. Mm. So. It's not the sexy stuff, but gosh, it's important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so important, important to get it right. Yeah, absolutely important. We'll get on to a couple of measures in a minute, but what did you learn? What I learned, what I learned was, gosh, how common suicide ideation is. Mm. What I learned is the most critical thing for people is to have a sense of connectedness, mm. a sense of I have something that I can contribute that people value, including myself, that I have a sense of hope. Mm. Again, such easy things to say and seem so obvious, but the complexity is identifying when somebody is tipping into that point Mm. and meeting the need. So notwithstanding the fact that we have put lived experience front and centre, have a much deeper understanding of the different journeys people go through, but the thing which is still outstanding for me is how do we ha- how do we find those indicators for when somebody is moving from ideation to intent? Yes. That's a critical touch point. Yeah. And when somebody is moving from intent into crisis. If we could but know the indicators of those, because mm-hmm. somebody at those points can't necessarily say it for us. Well, that's the point, and this is where oh. it gets back to your observation a minute yep. ago that it's that uh, it's about the personal dimension of suicide. Totally. It's, and the scary thing is, obviously, if someone is heading for a crisis point or an action point, often by that point they they are so shut down that they are not communicating that's it exactly. with loved ones. And, and that's, you know... That's... And this is why, this is why I think that um, the finding is we've been doing those what I call clinical interventions well. We need to do more. Yeah. We didn't. What we actually need to do is to reduce the number of people that are going towards that crisis point. Mm, And the mm. only way to do that is to effectively have targeted distress interventions. Yes, exactly. So we actually cut off the pipeline, if you like, of people, and then we need to have very comprehensive person-centred services that really are empowered to work with people to say, I think you're getting to a critical point. What do we need to do? Yeah, exactly. I want to get to prevention just in a bit. And, and uh, you've, you've, you're just saying early intervention, which is different to prevention, I know, but that's, it's an important line of thinking to go down. The Productivity Commission in its report about mental health noted that 25% of people who attempt suicide will try again. Mm-hmm. And uh, the risks increase that they will try again during the first three months after any hospital discharge. The PC cited a study that said aftercare, this is, you see where I'm going, Christine, mm-hmm. could reduce suicide attempts in emergency departments or showing up in emergency departments by about 20% and deaths by 1%, which sounds like sort of nothing until you actually translate the percentage, which would mean we would save 35 Australian lives a year and we would prevent about 6,000 repeat suicide attempts. So then we touch down in the budget recommendation, which to my mind is because, look, we've had this conversation before you and I, uh, the mental health system is 
large labyrinthine and I think highly dysfunctional. But if you're not going to blow the whole show up and start again, you've got to then start to work out what you can do within the apparatus that actually saves lives. That's why I was excited to see that in the budget. I thought that's a simple, practical thing that will actually save lives. But there's questions associated with it though, right? Yes. So yep. how do you how do you design such a scheme? How do you do that end-to-end whole of government thing that we're talking about? Because obviously such a scheme is mm-hmm. a, requires a federated response. And the reaction from sort of the mental health community experts and so on to the budget measures has been, oh, look, there's money, but it's it's for a workforce that doesn't exist. So I know that I've chucked... A number of huge things they're great. there. No, no, but they're all very relevant but and happy to talk them let's, through. Let's yeah, talk let's that talk through. Them through. Yeah. So firstly, let's deal – perhaps if what we can do is deal with aftercare yeah. and some critical things about aftercare per se that we need to do because I think everybody has a colloquial understanding of aftercare. So we need to just perhaps touch on that. Yeah. Then how do you do that in our system where you need to have that cooperation between Commonwealth and states and territories? and locals. And then what about the workforce? I think they're the three things I'm hearing. Yeah. So firstly, with respect to aftercare, absolutely, the evidence is in, the evidence is solid. And I think everybody is convinced of the need for aftercare. So a commitment to universal aftercare is really putting that goal aspiration in there of saying whoever presents us as in that crisis point should have aftercare. Aftercare is effectively uh, clinical and other support services that really wrap around the person for about three months mm. in a way that seeks to do those things we talked about before, reconnect them in, uh, provide them with something which turns the trajectory from black to spare into hope. So the reality of aftercare at the moment is startling. We have 75% of those we lose to suicide as being men. Participants in aftercare are very few men. So part of the problem here is a provision of service, but a very significant problem, and this is picked up in one of our recommendations about dealing with people disproportionately impacted by suicide who are men, is what do we do to actually ensure that as men come out of hospital, you can't mandate for somebody to have to accept one of these services. You can kind of require it, but Mm. we all know with mental health and suicide prevention, it's that sense of can I engage you in the process. So how do we actually make those services accessible for men? So what are we actually doing in our models of care and the way that people go into them, the way they're supported in their communities to make it accessible? That's really critical so that we can accelerate the take-up of the services. First point. And, of course, there's got to be more of them, and it's got to go for long enough. Mm. Secondly, what is really critical to me is that we have got too narrow a door into aftercare at the moment. So at the moment, it is anybody who has been in hospital for an attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. Now, yes, that's a, that's a solid cohort. Yep. But what are those, about those people who attempt yes. to never go to hospital? No, that's right. And why do we want to wait until they've attempted? Yes. If they're in crisis, <laughs> I, I want to help yeah. them before they attempt. Yeah, I know, I know. So what I'm particularly thrilled about in terms of the budget announcement about aftercare is fantastic. More services, universal, tick, tick, embedded in that. I will always say make them accessible. But there's money in there to actually pilot providing aftercare services for people who are in crisis, who Mm -hmm. may not have attempted, Mm -hmm. in distress, and who may be in other settings. Yes, right. So that's where we want to get to with aftercare. Mm. Because it's basically saying, if I'm in crisis, 
I don't want them to attend. So that's the first bit. Second bit, absolutely acknowledge the reality of what the Productivity Commission said, which is that we need to make sure that we're getting the Commonwealth and the states and territories together. Yeah. I have heard and appreciate and understand the concern that people have to say, but we're still not there yet, so will this money even be spent and spent properly? Mm, mm. So we can look at it from that perspective and say, oh, will it ever happen? Or we can look at what are the pieces that are currently being done and how can we further them? Step one on that, National Cabinet, First Ministers, back in December, all got together and under the the auspices of the uh, Reform Federation Council, made a commitment to saying we actually do want to work together mm. when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention. Mm. First Minister's down, mm. so the authorisation. Secondly, they made a commitment to having a national mental health and suicide prevention agreement by November. That is progressing. Mm. So that is a critical framework work document that or agreement, not a document, it's an agreement, it's a living thing. That does need to say what are the principles that we all need to apply and then how, what, are, what is our understanding of how we make this work? I can say genuinely to you, Catherine, that in all conversations I've had across jurisdictions, the desire to make it work is indisputable. Mm. We found that when we were doing our Vision 2030 work with the Commission back in 2019. All of the jurisdictions are saying, if we can make this work, Chris, it's got to be a good thing. Mm. So the desire is there. The mechanics are there. We're getting down into the granularity of what that will actually look like. Then it will come down to actually saying, how do we make those services work? And the intersect, you and I have talked about this before, Mm -hmm. is what's the door through which people come? What's the service they get? And how do we make that work better? Mm. So, yes, it's hard work. Mm. But I think think that's the reality. And that's what I've been saying to people about this budget. The the actual thing about this is how well we now implement it. That's, we've got the dollars on the table. We've got the commitments of governments. We actually have to roll up the sleeves and make it work mm. because people's lives are at stake. So I agree it's not there yet, but I what I do think is there is an enormous amount of positivity and goodwill to try and make it work. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure some listeners will think that going through the architecture of how these programs work out, well, of course that should happen and, and why are we focusing there? The point of focusing there is that nothing gets out the door unless the back end is, is functioning. So that's why we're focusing there. Going back into my corporate life too many years ago now and doing pretty big negotiations – Forget it if you don't even have an intent Mm. of wanting to get to a common goal. But you know what? If you actually have a common goal, it is unusual if you can't get progress made. Mm. The other thing is that undoubtedly going around Australia, people do make these things work on the ground. It's how we actually build it into the system Mm. that is really critical. So we've got a lot of work to do. We can't take our foot off the pedal, but the opportunities are there. And then thirdly, the workforce. Mm. Absolutely. That is critical. So I think the initiatives that are in the budget are solid. They're good. Um, We have, of course, the challenge that it is a critical enabler. Um, So... We, but we can't afford to wait until it all comes yes. into effect. So it's about how we move forward very consciously, consistently and get things done. Um, so what we know in the budget is that um, one of the significant investments here is in providing scholarships, clinical training placements, mm-hmm. over a 1,000 of them. And it applies in terms of the scholarships and the clinical training placements to psychologists, nurses, allied health professionals. 
there's training packages in there for psychiatrists. There's specific training packages in there for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island mental health workers. And there's 390 scholarships for peer workers. Mm. So it is there, but we need to accelerate it. Mm. We need to get it in there. And in the interim, I think a really key thing we need to do with our workforce, and this is acknowledged across, as I say, all jurisdictions, is how do we actually try and ensure that we are are using everybody we possibly can? Mm. And that means what is it that our psychiatrists could and should be doing? Mm -hmm. What is it our psychologists can do and our GPs? The other thing which is in the, the budget is a significant boost for GPs. So there's scholarships or subsidies in there for 3,400 GPs to be trained in focused psychological therapeutic treatments and then to be able to qualify for different Medicare rebates. So there's a lot of work and there is also an intake and assessment tool. So there's a lot that is being done in that space. Mm. We all recognise it. The challenge, of course let's not live in la-la land, <laughs> is how to move it forward <laughs> while all of that happens. Yes, and, and how, well, and how to move, move it forward fast enough because yeah. it's sort of like demand is sort of vastly outstripping supply even though we keep putting... So the other thing we're doing on that one, Catherine, and I think 2020 was an eye-opener for this, right, is the digital world is well and truly here. Yes. Well and truly here. So the question is not should we have digital, should we have telehealth? The question is how do you best optimise them so that you are ensuring your face-to-face times are what are critical when you have them and what can you, could you, should you do best Mm. when it comes to online? Mm. And that's another mechanism that we really need to accelerate. Mm. What about, oh, my God, we're so running out of time. This is ridiculous. We could talk about this for about three hours. Anyway, I'll get Christine back as we we continue through this whole process. But just quickly on prevention, you did mention it before, an early intervention. It would be a whole lot better, wouldn't it, if we could screen the entire population, identify people at risk and get them before they before they you know end up in a mental health service or or worse can we do that can i use the analogy of physical health yes and what we know with physical health is you certainly can prevent things the right dietary approaches lifestyle approaches etc can prevent illness but doesn't prevent it all no some things your body is going to have happen yeah. to it so early intervention we also know there is really important. It's exactly the same with mental health. One of the things that really came through to us in 2020 was that, and we've said this before, our mental health is as much a part of us as our physical health. Just like we expect to get unwell physically, Mm. it will happen mentally. So you can prevent a lot, but you can't prevent everything. So therefore, identifying when you can intervene early, and that's early in life, um, early in illness, early in episode of illness mm. and early in relapse. Mm. So what are the touch points? And the PC was so strong on this as well, yeah. which was to say we we have this log jam at the single most critical and expensive, to be honest, and expensive not just in health system costs, but in expensive in terms of impact on the individual mm. by letting people get too unwell. Mm. So how do we move the, the trajectory, if you like? How do we get – and I think there's a few things we need for that – we intuitively know, we, we train our toddlers to know when they're feel, feeling not well physically. Mm-hmm. We need to 
broaden and deepen our mental health literacy for ourselves. So we actually have a sense of self-agency and awareness of what we need to do to look after ourselves. We need to destigmatize, take down those barriers to actually reaching out for help. And there's still a lot of them, unfortunately. Mm. Even after 2020, there's still a lot of yeah. stigma and discrimination. And can I tell you, a lot of it is another topic completely, but so much of it is built into our structural organization policies, etc. Yeah. So that's a biggie. Then we need to actually have entry points into services. So one of the big focuses now is to pick it up in suicide prevention. 50% don't come to us. Why don't we go to them? Mm. Obvious. Why don't we make our services so much more accessible that it's not that hard for people to actually reach out and when they do, they start to get the right services. Mm. That means going into communities. It means not just relying on our GPs, they're great, but actually having centres and doorways in community settings and online. The big thing about online is that it's anonymous. I was just talking to an uncle the other day of a teenager who he, he just can't bring himself to go and see someone. He had a, a psychologist that he liked. They've moved on. Mm. He can't. Yeah. But you know what? He can. He can reach out to something like Reach Out Online, Anonymous. He can do that connection. So they're, they're the critical things about that early intervention. And then helping people stay well. And I think one of the really big, enormous shifts here is for too long, mental health budgets have looked at gosh, how much are we spending on mental illness? Mm. It's kind of like that expenditure side of a P&L. What we need to move to, and I think we are now moving to, is to say, let's go on to the balance sheet, not the mm. P&L, and we're actually investing in mental health and wellbeing. Yes. So we're actually putting the dollars into keeping people well. Yes, rather than treating them when they're sick, which yep. is... We will always do that. Yes. We'll always have that as an expenditure item. Yeah. But you know what? If we invest... Then, yeah. yeah, we'll have less at the end. The other thing I just want to touch on with you is another thing the Productivity Commission was very strong on, and that's evaluation. Yes. Uh, it's sort of extraordinary <clears throat> that we have billions and billions walking out the door in the treatment of mental health in, in various programs run by mm -hmm. wonderful people with the best of intentions, but Productivity Commission made it clear that we have really no idea whether any of that is moving the dial at all. And anecdotally, it seems to me that the prevalence of mental health is is larger. <laughs> so, so, I look, oh, so what, many points on this point. No, this I is know. a big topic, so let's unbundle that yeah. a little bit too. Yeah. So evaluation is important. You're speaking to the – like – Absolutely. I would be saying this from get-go. Yes. What is the point? I, I, since of, I am speaking to the evangelist <laughs> of evaluation. Absolutely. Yes. Totally a good way to put an evangelist yes. around this one. But really importantly for me, let's not get hung up on measuring activity in our system. Yeah. And that is where we frequently go. How many people are going through our service? Look, that might work if you're saying how many broken arms am I setting? Yes. Because you make an assumption that you set a broken arm, it's going to get better. Yeah. You cannot make an assumption that just because somebody's been to a psychologist, it's going to work. Exactly. You just can't. No. So measuring busyness in the system or outputs or activity-based funding, I think it's called, is in and of itself not really helpful. Yeah. We actually have to we have to measure outcomes out outcomes for people impacts. I stumble over it because it's got so much behind it. No, 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 no. Well, I was almost oh. going to do the whole conversation about this, frankly, because yes. but sort of got to catch people up with well where where things are at, how you've got to this point. 
perhaps we'll have a conversation in a little while that is entirely about evaluation rather than semi-butcher it because we're running against the clock. And and why I would like to is because I think there's a really core component of a good evaluation for mental health. And I'll use a physical health analogy. If my arm is broken, then there's a quantitative test or scan that tells me if it's fixed. Yeah. If I have a mental health challenge, I don't want somebody else telling me that I'm okay because I'm absent X, Y, Z symptoms. Yes. If it's not working for me, no, exactly. that leads us right to a phrase which can be quite contentious, and I still think we need to unbundle properly, of person-led and person-centred. Mm, mm. Because when we're going to measure outcomes, and we need to get some objectivity around them, because otherwise you don't have a framework you can work with, mm. but it really needs to look at what is recovery from a person perspective. Well, yeah, the Productivity Commission was pretty sharp on this. Yeah. They basically said, look, this is a whole system constructed by and led by experts, and people with mental health conditions are other silent voices in in the system. So it's, and it's critical. You can't do away with the clinical. So getting that right intersect is really challenging. So if I go back to my my former years with eating disorders, there is absolutely where the clinicians are taking and have to take you, which is to a diminution of the symptoms because the symptoms will kill you. There is the bit about if I'm living with this, what is my sustainability in my recovery, yeah. which only I can give a voice to. Yes. Because what, So it's that intersect between the quantitative and the qualitative, mm-hmm. and it needs to be around and informed by the person, but you can't also not have your clinical expertise. So I think there's a few things that we talk about in mental health and suicide prevention that roll off the tongue and actually need a whole heap of forensic analysis. One is this whole of government. The second is this whole issue around outcomes and what it means. It's a big piece of work. The third is the intersect with kind of the social determinants. Mm. You hear that so easily. Oh, my goodness. If you really try and unbundle that and say, what is housing security for Mm. someone? What is it for you? What is it for me? What? Mm. So, so I think they're big concepts that are very popular to say, make it sound so easy to fix. Just go determine around social determinants. Go do whole of government. Go work out your outcomes. Actually, behind each of them is an enormous amount of really intellectual grunt we need to do, yeah. and really careful working with real people to say what does that actually well, it's mean. Sort of like in systems that love empirical. Yeah. You know, points of reference. Mental health, in a way, it's like it's making peace with the subjective. It's a beautiful making... way to put it. Beautiful. <laughs> and, and one of our first conversations, I was kind of like going through the thinking with you of does mental health system have to sit outside physical health system because yes. it's so different. Yeah. Landed here 18 months later. No, actually, we do need them together because we do exist in one earth suit. Yes. And one impacts the other. So to break the systems would create, I think, more problems than not. But how to do mental health in a hierarchical health system when in and of itself you have to collapse the hierarchies (laughs) is that's the challenge and that's the system reform. So to blow up the system, I think, could create damage. Do we need really substantive systemic change so that you can accommodate the hierarchy that's needed for clinical physical health with the non-hierarchical, multidisciplinary, collapsed version you need for mental health, that's the challenge. Yeah, exactly. That is absolutely the nub of it. Yep. That is it. 
just quickly, we, we, we do need to wrap, but is there money for evaluation in the budget? Yes. So there's $117 million which is sitting in the fifth pillar, right. which is based around what are we doing around data collection and evaluation. Right. And it will feature in the National Partnership Agreement because what you need to do with evaluation is not just do program evaluation mm-hmm. or service evaluation, which can be done in each jurisdiction. You actually need system evaluation. Yes. So you need to be able to evaluate how is the whole thing working. And if we want whole of government and whole of governments national, how do you do that? Mm. Needs everybody at the table. Mm, okay. Chris, if anyone's been upset mm. or disturbed, these are very difficult very. subject matters, very triggering subject matters. If anyone's been disturbed by this conversation or has decided as a consequence of this conversation to reach out to someone, what should they do? Look, please call Lifeline. I really think, or Lifeline or of any of the other digital services. But but the single most important thing I'd say to people is a lesson we learned in 2020 was, yes, sure, mental health impacts all of us. We learned that one. But we also learned something really important, that it does actually make a positive difference if you reach out mm. because there are services. People do get it. They do understand. And people do want to help. They yes. do want to help you. Yeah. So don't hesitate. Don't feel as though you can't do it. There is no shame. Just reach out because having that conversation and connecting makes all the difference. It certainly does. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a busy week, so I really appreciate you making the time to have this chat. And we will come back because it's huge. Like We, we seriously can't do this conversation in half an hour. We only we just barely touch the sides. So thank you, Chris. Thank you also to Miles Martignoni, who is the EP of the show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. Thank you to you. You guys for listening. This is an important conversation. You can play a part by putting it in front of people, by sharing it through your social networks and other things. Please do that. There's some public interest in doing that. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.